Today we're speaking about Australian literature of World War I. To appreciate Australian literature of World War I, it's important to place it into context. In the Western tradition, there have been written narratives of war for at least 4,000 years. Most of these stories perform foundational functions in that they set values for the society as well as explaining the society's origins, preferred behaviours and geographical place. Most war stories include a cautionary element, lauding the society's warriors while warning of the inherent contingency of mortal existence. While styles of writing about war have evolved over time, many narratives still address these fundamental concerns. Different styles of writing about World War I express different aspects of what was a long and complex event, with multiple perspectives not organised along demographic lines. For example, there's no such thing as the woman's view, as the works of women writers cover the entire range from rabid jingoism to despairing pacifism. World War I remains the most literary war ever conducted, leaving behind a trove of material including letters, diaries, memoirs, histories, plays, poetry, novels, short stories, journalism, propaganda, official records and even verse novels. Two major approaches to writing World War I are the traditional and the disillusionment styles. I should note here that my discussion today revolves around the literature, not the history of the war, and that the connections and disjunctions between literature and history is a topic for another day. The traditional style of war writing has been employed for centuries and includes patriotic, consolatory, heroic, elegiac, cautionary, action-adventure and inspirational works. Australian style is generally considered a subset of traditional war writing. Traditional war writing attempts to honour the sacrifice of society's forebears while relaying the scale of that sacrifice. The Iliad is generally considered the first Western war story and is sometimes erroneously thought to simply glorify war. On the contrary, all the Iliad's heroes are stricken with fear and there are few scenes of war more desolating than that of Hector's body being dragged around the walls of Troy in the dust. Very few traditional texts glorify war. Most convey the confronting message of mortality, which even the most heroic of protagonists is unable to overcome. The disillusionment style of war writing was first noted as sensational in the 1930s and has been prominent since the 1960s. Disillusionment is an extremely effective manner in which to express war's horror and futility. Post-war attitudes cemented disillusionment as the preferred telling. The disenchantment works touched a chord in public taste and popular memory at a time when there was a great deal of discontent with the post-armistice, unfulfilling world of the Depression. According to Samuel Hines, the ironic mode was adopted as the most appropriate mode of telling, and words like disenchantment and disillusionment came to be used as though they were objective and neutral terms for the soldiers' attitudes to the war's events, thereby valorising these attitudes above others and repressing notions of victory and the value of sacrifice. The major works of the disillusionment canon are Remarks All Quiet on the Western Front, Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That, Siegfried Sassoon's Memoirs of an Infantry Officer, and of course the poetry of Wilfred Owen. There are many other texts in a similar vein, some of which are excellent and some of which are rather less so, straying into a sensational schlock of gore and expedience. It's important, though, to recognise that these texts do not represent the majority of works about the war, 
and also that their truth value is no more certain than that of many traditional works. Several notions of disillusionment can be qualified. First, it's a minority response. And we move into dangerous territory if we are to reject other renderings of the war because they do not subscribe to the disillusionment attitude. We as latter-day readers cannot deny the writings of veterans in particular. Second, the 1930s reflections of the disillusionment writers differ from their recorded thoughts and actions at the time. Diaries written during the war, even those of iconic writers like Graves and Vera Brittain, are often far less bleak and more patriotic than the books which were later based on them. Many personal diaries of the time were quite as xenophobic and nationalistic as the most fervent propaganda. Much of the poetry produced during and immediately after the war was framed in epic terms, and the best of it sold quite as well as the disenchantment poetry that became popular following the war. Owen, so widely read since the 1960s, was almost unknown in the 1930s. Sassoon and Graves explicitly denied that their books were anti-war as an institution, their objections to this war notwithstanding. Yet from the late 1920s, disillusionment began to exclude other perspectives that had previously been valid. Disillusionment matched the dystopian mood of the times, becoming the memory of choice, both literary and historical. As Bond relates, once radical views of the generals and staff's incompetence became the received wisdom, leading to modern-day representations such as Blackadder Goes Forth being treated as history rather than farce. Although the disillusionment canon is unrepresentative of most World War I writing, being the mere tip of a very large iceberg, it dominates the war's literary legacy. Disillusionment constitutes largely the responses of a privileged few and selected responses at that. With that context in place, we turn now to the main topic of my discussion, Australian style, which, because it follows many of the tenets of traditional Western war literature, has been under-regarded and at times dismissed as inferior to the popular disillusionment canon. Here is a simplified overview of the contrasts between disillusionment and Australian style. The dominant features of disillusionment are that the protagonist is a victim, who is an ineffective soldier and never kills anyone, that the action is focused on the Western Front trench, which is always muddy, rather than on other theatres of war or even other seasons. That the leadership persists in making farcical decisions having no regard for the consequences, thus becoming a more dangerous enemy than the declared opposition forces. That the home society crassly profits from the war and that horror is the daily fare of the soldier. Australian World War I style, on the other hand, offers a more purposeful interpretation of the war, anchored in a determination to posit the sacrifices worthwhile and to make the war serve as a foundation story for the nation. The fundamental distinction is that Australian texts prefer a heroic style, with laconic protagonists who successfully, and with little introspection, enact their soldierly role. However, I have identified and explored a number of additional elements differentiating Australian World War I narratives from the literature of other nations. These nine features, which comprise our distinct Australian style, are extraordinarily tenacious across time providing evidence that they are sourced from widely approved underlying cultural values. The first four relate to the preference for heroic constructions, restating the value of individual agency and complying with the creation myth norm that mortal man can successfully navigate the dangerous contingent world. In Australian narratives, 
Heroic tropes are privileged over victimisation, enabling us to propose that the individual's actions are meaningful. Secondly, much of the narrative occurs outside the trench, allowing less time for passivity and fear. Third, Australian protagonists are more likely to kill than their canonical counterparts, thus contrasting the Antipodean man of action with the victim infantryman of disillusionment. Fourth, the Australian attitude is that war is a task to be done, involving all the danger and discomfort of difficult tasks, rather than a sacred crusade for ideals. The final five distinguishing features appear to be grounded in colonial priorities that differentiate the new nation from the debased social values of the central empire, as well as proposing that the citizens of the new nation are vigorous and fresh, unlike the jaded, emasculated and overindulged citizens of the old country. Number five is that Australia's older generation is less likely to be blamed for the war's prosecution, because Australians divert the disgust for authority to the British. Sixth, Australian stories eschew homoerotic and homosexual themes because homosocial mateship dominates. Any eroticism is decidedly heterosexual. Seventh, Australians explore their dislocation with tropes of adventure and tourism, marking their war as memorable, episodic and divorced from their usual lives. Eighth, women are either notably scarce or distinctly feminine, supportive and tender. This contrasts with the sometimes malevolent women in disillusionment novels. And finally, the Australian home front is stable and supportive, delivering no or few surprises to the fighting man. We turn now to an overview of some of our writers and their works. The first editions of all the books I mention are housed here in the National Library. Some well-known Australian authors wrote about the war. For example, Mary Grant Bruce moved to Ireland with her husband after the outbreak of the war, which cut short their honeymoon. He was a veteran of Indian and South Africa and was recalled to train recruits in Dublin. While there, Mary wrote the four Billabong books which deal most directly with World War I. Eon Idrius, another prolific author who had a significant impact on Australian writing and publishing in the 20th century, was a veteran of Gallipoli and Palestine. On Gallipoli, Idrius was a spotter for Australia's most famous sniper, Private Billy Singh, who was nicknamed the Murderer. Idrius's book The Desert Column was published in 1932 and republished a week later when it sold out. Ethel Turner, author of Seven Little Australians, lived in Sydney during the war where she organised first aid courses. She also campaigned for conscription and wrote a trilogy about the war, The Cub Series, which is notable for being patriotic but not having any anti-German propaganda. Leonard Mann, later a lawyer and celebrated author, enlisted in 1916 aged 20 and fought on the Western Front. His book Flesh in Armour has been reprinted many times and is, in my opinion, one of the finest and most complex novels to come out of the war. Frederick Manning, an expat Sydney cider, had a somewhat chequered career as an officer in the British Army. He enlisted in 1915 aged 33, but he had serious problems with alcohol and resigned his commission in 1917 with the express agreement of his superiors. However, his excellent novel, The Middle Parts of Fortune, was considered by Hemingway to be the best of the war. Jack McKinney is perhaps best known to us as the husband of the poet Judith Wright. He enlisted in 1915, aged 24, and served four years on the Western Front. His novel Crucible is the most balanced portrait of Australians in World War I. Then there is George Mitchell, 
who represents much of what we think of as the Anzac legend today. He was an Adelaide clerk with a reputation for larrikinism and a dislike of officialdom. He enlisted in September 1914, age 20, and landed at Anzac Cove on the 25th of April 1915. His memoir, Backs to the Wall, is a most evocative narrative of the war experience. Of over 316,000 Australians who served overseas, about 7,000 served from the first engagement at Gallipoli to the armistice, and Mitchell was one of these. Despite serving the whole war on the front line and being outrageously brave, he was never wounded. He was awarded a Distinguished Conduct Medal in 1917 and a Military Cross in 1918. During the war, he was promoted and then demoted six times for various offences. Mitchell finished the war as a captain and then went on to serve in World War II. The books written by these Australians record more heroic actions than farcical ones. They focus more on the survivors of the war than on the lost, while showing that the self-sacrifice of both the dead and the survivors was worthwhile. They admit that soldiers in war must kill, but they provide a larger picture of the lives of men at war. Unlike Blackadder Goes Forth, Australian protagonists spend most of their time out of the trench. They are attacking, in reserve, at training, on leave, in hospital, or marching from one place where they don't want to be to another place where they don't want to be. Australian books show the home front as supportive, not burdensome or selfish or warmongering. Importantly, they look to the future while not forgetting the cost. World War I, for these writers, is a tragedy that nevertheless helps build the nation. Leonard Mann sums it up in Flesh in Armour. They would be going home soon to mingle again with their own people in their own land. Some effect that return must have. They were a people. The war had shown that. It seemed, now he was leaving the old familiar landscape of death, that his life and the life of this generation was finished. They were the dung for the new flowering and fruit of the future. And here's George Mitchell expressing the connections between grief and achievement. At the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month came the silence. London and Paris went mad, but to us it all seemed unreal. There was a little cheering. Wonderful times we had, but underlying all was an indefinable sadness. Against the grey mists of distance showed well-remembered faces in an endless gallery. Those who marched beside us for a while and died that our people might live. They died, but did not fail. The business of these writers was the building of a nation, not questioning it or grieving over its destruction. The worth of Australia was assumed and celebrated. In many ways, these books form a legacy of purpose, proposing an outcome of the war which was, on the whole, more positive than negative. From the ruins of civilization so movingly recounted by European authors, the Australians stated their belief in the foundation of a matured Australian society built on the valuable sacrifices of the Anzacs. Australian World War I style may have grown out of a desire to demarcate the nation as a separate entity but this style persists a century after the war's conclusion. Australian cultural values support a mainstream view of our experience as having been at least equally constructive as it was destructive, despite the challenges of alternative viewpoints. Despite our greater appreciation of the futility of war, canonical World War I disillusionment tropes continue to be qualified in Australian renderings. As Martin Thomas recently remarked, Historical falsehoods are built on fragments of reality, and for this reason, they reveal greater cultural truths. 
The valuable work done by scholars such as Carolyn Holbrook in uncovering the fragments of reality behind the Anzac legend can be complemented by further consideration of the greater cultural truths on which our legend is based. A desire to be recognised as an independent nation with its own laudable creation myths, for a celebration of culturally desirable traits and for a compensatory value to balance the cost are all aspects involved in the creation and continuation of Anzac. Whether these cultural priorities will continue to operate with the same strength into the future remains to be seen. We can perhaps discern an evolution of the heroic Anzac into a more quotidian hero, someone to be relied upon for assistance in time of domestic crises such as floods and fire. The recognition of Australian peacekeeping forces as Anzacs is consonant with this notion. The recognition of Australian peacekeeping forces as Anzacs is consonant with this notion. It will be fascinating to observe how this evolution of ideals will affect the ongoing reception of Australian World War I literature, especially in conjunction with the raised awareness accompanying the centenary. Thank you.